drink my juice box harder <laughs> you have three beverages over there You're the worst <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the duke and duchess podcast welcome back i'm the duchess i'm the duke and this is episode 56 Woohoo! a momentous occasion as we are at the end of all the written published materials for the gentleman bastards sequence so what do you think are you are you gonna read book four i think i have a problem with people who use the word sequence when they mean series yeah that would drive someone crazy it does yes i will read book four I will not continue if shit don't get better, though. Really? Yeah. I think it's going to. I think it's set up for a really good book four if he can pull it off, because I think he fixes at the tail end of this book what was missing from books two and three. Tell me more about that. I think what made books two and three so much less compelling than book one is the lack of a really kick-ass villain. I agree. And the Falconer really was a kick-ass villain. Yeah. I feel like Scott Lynch's writing style works really well when he has a kick-ass villain. When he doesn't have a kick, when it's a sort of this mamby-pamby, mediocre placeholder villain, then they're just kind of okay. Yeah, Stan is the Archon didn't really do it. <laughs> Listen, I don't know why you're comparing the the literary <laughs> genius that is Stannis, the military genius that is Stannis, to the Archon, who sent two knuckleheads out to sea to as his master stroke for taking over a city. I mean, they're literally the same person, but we've oh been on this merry-go-round before too many times. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? We ain't got no spoiler policy. That's right. <laughs> we are at the end. There ain't spoilers nothing left to spoil. Abound. Spoilers abound. I will warn you that we will spoil Song of Ice and Fire. Mm, maybe we'll try not to spoil major stuff and we will sto- spoil king killer chronicles probably star wars probably some doctor who but nothing else in the uh gentleman bastard sequence because we're at the end so we're here today finishing up our coverage of the republic of thieves by scott lynch when we last left our hero and heroine Patience had just told Locke all about who he was. Body snatcher. He's a body snatcher. He's an he's a purple people eater. I don't know what he is. And Sabatha was deciding if she could love him enough. Well, Sabatha was basically fleeing for her life because she's just been told that her pseudo almost boyfriend is a body snatcher. Yeah, well, you know, you don't 
and was rightly sort of freaked out. So the chapter we started with this week is called The Five-Year Game Final Approaches, and it picks up right where we left off with Locke barging into Sabbath's headquarters and being told on no uncertain terms that he was to leave, that he was not going to see her. She didn't want to see him. Keep your hands off my balls. Keep your hands off my balls this time, says Lord Ratha. Yeah. Don't let that man within arm's reach of me or your <laughs> genitals. Locke retreats. He he tells the story to Jean, and Jean is extremely sensible, which, thank goodness, you want someone to lay, yeah. like come along and be like, look, she could be lying. He says, you know, what if this whole thing is bullshit from bow to stern? Yeah, interesting that, that Jean has now started to adopt nautical terms. Yeah, I caught that too. Well, and that's a an important point to ponder is, is she telling the truth or is she lying? And I think, I, I don't think it's as simple as all that. We'll get to that later, but I think the answer is somewhere in between. We will. And how did you take Sabatha's reaction because at this point I think Nicaro shows up and he's got a letter from Sabatha who kind of lays out what her fears are and what her feelings are and she tells Locke that hey I need to keep things professional for a while you might be a body snatcher or something and I'm a little weirded out honestly Uh, so I I felt like that was kind of an appropriate thing for her to do you know like hey we still have to put on this play. We still have to pretend and play our roles or else we might get strung up by our toes. So I'm just going to stay over here and you stay over there and we'll figure our shit out later. Exactly. Normal and, to me. and Locke yeah. decides to respect that, which I think is character progress for him. Yeah, I think so. You know, and it's, it's going to it's only going to help him, you know. This situation is basically Sabbath's worst nightmare. She's someone who is highly motivated by a need for freedom and is a meticulous planner. And she's afraid of being tied down to things that she doesn't understand. And here is a person that probably has this giant secret that he doesn't even understand about himself. Well, not to mention that, but Lamore Acanthus is the definition of clingy. Super clingy, like (laughs) Like, beyond the grave clingy. Beyond the grave clingy. Like death didn't do them part. It's like a stage 12 clinger right Right? there. I mean, (laughs) dig her back up, present her to me. (laughs) That's some Wuthering Heights shit right there. I mean, it's, you know, it's a different level. Right? He's playing the game on a different level. Possess the body of a six year old orphan. Just to get back at you. That's right. <laughs> well, it caused me to think, okay, so Sabbath is what, like two years older than Locke? Something like that, yeah. And when did his wife die? Probably about two years before the plague. Okay. If Sabbath turns out to be the reincarnation of his wife, I will burn something to the ground because Thank that you. would be absolutely ridiculous. Please, for the love of God, don't make that happen. <laughs> I don't think that'll happen. I don't think so, but it did cross my mind. It, it, I think, yeah, it did for me as well. But no, that would be that would be too much. I don't know. You think he didn't take her coffin to Kamor? No, I don't. I think he did. You think he did? That would be weird. Because his his thing with wanting to 
his obsession with necromancy wasn't because he wanted to live forever. It was because he wanted her back. Ew. It's some last dance with Mary Jane shit. We've already got like the weekend at Bernie's subplot going on. Right? And the flashback. There's some... Maybe it's not all about the play. Maybe it's about how long can you keep a dead person around before they stink too much. (laughs) All right, moving on. Moving on. So we have Locke and Sabatha have this bombshell dropped on them, but it doesn't stop the political mudfuckery that needs to go on. Third act has got to begin. It's got to begin. So the there's some the next stage is them scrambling around and basically hatching a plot to try and register these war refugees who are coming in as voters. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting commentary on the voting process and politics in general that we get. Um, Scott Lynch obviously has strong feelings about that. And uh, the whole process is it's a very cynical take on voting as as Locke and John and Sabatha really are just just going about this in in really the most corrupt and underhanded way possible. But they're they're pulling in these refugees and um, Sabatha's right on top of their plan. And they realize that they have to have a rat in their organization somewhere. So they, they set about trying to figure out who it is. So Locke tries the Tyrion method. Indeed. He tells three people three different things. Yep. To find out which one of them leaks. And then that's when he knows who his rat is. Indeed. And there's also something going on where they are trying to get one of the Black Iris members to turn his coat. Yep. And then they break into his house for some nefarious purpose. We don't get to know until the end of the book. Yeah. But the political, the commentary on the political process, I think, is one of the ways in which this book starts to break down. Because really? one of the problems I think that Scott Lynch has as an author is that he tries to be a little too cute, is my opinion. That he wants to show off these sort of thematic things, sometimes at the expense of the actual story. You know? You know, I think I I can see what you're saying. And maybe not at the expense of the story, but at the expense of some of his characters. Mm, yeah. And I definitely would agree with you. While I love the main cast, a lot of his secondary characters feel very shallow. Yeah, it's it's sort of like you have these great actors on a stage, to use the play analogy some more, but the the, the chorus and the people they're playing against are literally cardboard cutouts. Yeah, and they're not... Um, I mean, they're fun characters, but I don't even feel like just with some other works that we've read Mm -hmm. or works that I've read, the supporting cast feels as real as the main cast. Yeah. And I just, I don't get that as much. Like I said, this is much, a much more plot driven. Yeah. I think particularly in the, in the, the quote current day, all the election stuff with Nikoros and all these characters and. You know, it just doesn't feel as real. Or I just don't care about them. Yeah. I think he does a better job in this book in the flashbacks, the interludes, where I feel like the Mon Crane Company, those sort of secondary characters are more fleshed out. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
But, you know, we've got, so we've got the plot and I, I love the plot twists and, and we'll get into what, how everything turns out at the end of the election after we go through the last interlude. But I like the twistiness of the plot and, and I love the relationship between Locke and Sabatha as it develops. Because we see at the beginning of the novel, we saw Locke in their childhood, you know, develop this infatuation with her and her put it out there to him that, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm suspecting that you're infatuated with the idea of me, not me as a person. And we see him, we see her laying out the reasons why she has a problem with him. And we see them communicating. And then we see him start to actually listen to her and make changes based on the things that she's saying to him. And now we see in this exchange of letters, again, he's able to take a step forward in his development and respect her wishes. And he basically says to her, he writes her back a letter and says, look, I, I you know, I, you know where I stand. I'm just going to step back. And if you decide you want to be with me, that's great. But you can come to me and I'm going to stop actively pursuing you if that's what you want. Yeah. And I, what I liked about this scene, so Jean comes and he brings Sabbath of this letter and they patch things up a little bit. And then she climbs up to the roof of her tower, her stronghold mm -hmm. and reads it. And we actually get a glimpse into her mind of what's going on there. Yeah. And I, again, I just think that's so crucial when you have a, like a star crossed lovers dynamic that you really understand where they're both coming from. Well, I think if you have the star crossed lovers and like, and like it keeps breaking down. Yeah. You know, and things aren't moving forward in that direction. And you end up only getting one person's side of the story. You end up in a quote, Dana situation. Right. Where everybody hates Dana. Nobody really knows why they hate Dana. Because we don't really know any fucking thing about Dana. Exactly. Yeah. It's too mysterious in that situation. Yeah. But here we get a bit of Sabbath's inner workings. And she's be able to be like, you know... I'm really conflicted about this guy. Like he seems like he's two different people and I really like one of the people and I really hate the other guy. Yeah. And now it seems like there's maybe a, a bonds mage in there somewhere. Like, like, I don't know what to do. And you're like, okay, girl, I can relate to that. Yeah. I can yeah. connect with that. Well, and then, well, we'll talk about the other part of it later. Is that, is that juice box number two? Man, it's going to be a wild night. <laughs> Blew the lid off my Capri Sun habit. Hidden that Capri Dude. Sun heavy up in her. You just crushed that Capri Sun against your head, <laughs> like, like so many gun-toting rednecks I know. <laughs> I'm gonna house this here Budweiser and crush a can against my head. <laughs> Show you I'm a man. Is that what you just did? You saw it. I can't deny what I saw. I got a little bit of redneck in me. All right. <laughs> Let's move so, on. 
two things crossed my head when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> the first was, do I need to watch out for little rednecks coming around the house? And the second was, no, the fuck you don't. <laughs> I've seen where you grew you grew up. You ain't got no redneck in you. <laughs> Maybe many generations back. Way back, back. generations way back. Way back, yeah. Come on now. All right, I'm going to be no looking out for little Baltimore. rednecks. <laughs> oh, there are plenty of rednecks in Baltimore. You just don't know any. <laughs> and now you're busting my street cred. Yes. Man. Yes, I am. Dang. No, it's true. I. <laughs> you're hard out on them streets. I get nervous when I go to the Dollar General. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's sketchy over there. <laughs> Don't make fun of me. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> the Dollar General. Shh. If I took you that's into a, a Dollar Tree, you would just you would just implode. <laughs> Look, everything can't cost a dollar, okay? <laughs> Oh, I take you to the Family Dollar on President Street, <laughs> Baltimore City. I'll pee my pants. <laughs> I think you would. So, well, we've laughed at my expense. So, let's get this let's keep train moving. back on the tracks. <laughs> the interlude we have here is called Death Masks, and the last interlude. It's so metal. It was really metal. So metal. I mean, basically, it's all about toting around a dead body. So this interlude, we find the gang from the flashback scrambling to keep people from finding out that Buladazi, their patron, is dead. And also figuring out how they're going to get the money that's collected at the play. Yep. So, so we see them going ahead and performing the play. I got lots of opinions about the play. Tell me some of those opinions. I don't know if any of them add up to a damn hill of beans. If we look at the play, are we ready to kind of talk about the play? Yeah, we're there. Okay. We're at the play. So if we look at the play, it's really all about, to me, how it ends. And we have Aaron and Amadine, again, our star-crossed lovers, right? And Aaron and his best friend, Farron, are running around pretending to be these thieves, right? Auron is gold, Farron is iron. That's very clear from the text. I don't know what any of it freaking means. I don't know if it has any bearing on anything. And I think that's another one of the things that could be very, very awesome about this series if Scott Lynch finds a way to bring all these little things back. But I can't see any connection can you figure out why Oren is gold and Farron is iron well what I saw in the play first of all I certainly see the parallels between Oren and Farron and Locke and Jean Mm -hmm. if anything you could certainly say that Locke is the gold and Jean is the iron yeah their roles in the play as well Oren is the emperor's son who foolishly is going to risk everything for his love for Amadine, Queen of the Shadows. Mm-hmm. Farron is his best friend, who is like, dude, you're an idiot. Yeah. And eventually, Oren has to kill him in order to save Amadine. But 
more importantly, the theme of the play seems to be about free will and destiny. And these two characters who seem locked in a destiny, who are scrambling to take hold of their own futures. So we have Amadine, who now at the end of the play, the the emperor's sorcerer comes in and basically says, uh, you either need to kill her or I'm going to kill her with a spell. And either way, you're going to go become the emperor now. And the line that Oren says is the the path to the throne is straight with never a turning. And Amadine at that point decides to kill herself rather than let someone else do it and taking charge of her own destiny. And I just makes me wonder if there's going to be some sort of foreshadowing in Sabbath's future. where She's going to have to make a similar choice, but the theme of predestination of, of free will and, and making your own choices seems very relevant to what, Locke and Sabatha just found out about, you know, is he influenced by this bonds mage? Is he this bonds mage reborn? What does that mean for his destiny? Mm-hmm. Does he actually make his own choices? Yeah. And Sabatha, I think, probably always felt that way, you know, having found out what we know about what it's like to be a, a redheaded orphan female and how her whole life she probably felt like out of control of her own destiny because of that. Mm-hmm. And how desperately she needs to feel in control of her own life. That's all very relevant. Yeah, I I like that point of view. I saw it slightly differently. I saw the play as a glorification of male-dominated power. And I saw it speaking more to the themes, the political themes that he's putting forward. But I like what you have there. And I, I definitely think... I think that's at least as strong, if not a stronger correlation. I guess uh, my question is, is Lynch trying to give us a traditional play within a play that hints at what will happen? Or is he trying to poke fun at the convention of a play within a play? Because what I see at the end is that Auron sacrifices love for the sake of duty. No, I don't think that that is what happens in the play. I think the sorcerer asks Oren to do that, and Oren says, no, I won't, at which point Amadine says, I'm just going to kill myself, making the decision for him. Now, Oren then does go on to become the emperor because at that point there's there's no Amadine for him to save. Yeah. But I don't know. For me, I... I think there's too much respect in the way that Scott Lynch describes the play. I don't think it's meant to be poking fun at or any kind of mm-hmm. of mockery at all. I think it's it's meant to be an earnest. See, I don't know. I, I look at their decisions and I look at the decisions that Aaron and Amadine made and, and I don't agree that the decision was taken out of his hand. I think it's about glorifying that to make it look as though it was that way, but that he had several choices all along to, 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 to change that path. But he didn't, he made every, in the course of the play, he made sort of every outward gesture to say, I'm not responsible for Amadine's death, but he didn't make any of the choices that could have actually resulted in her being saved. And he chose to go forward with his duty as opposed to moving forward 
would love because there were options that he could have had. And I think Amadine had options not to fall into a situation where her fate would be decided by a man, but she chose not to. And in the end, sacrificed herself so that she could save face and save some sort of pride, taking the decision away from him so that he could remain noble in, you know, and not have dirtied his hands. But ultimately her fate was still decided by a man before she ever walked, you know, before she ever took her own life. So I, I look at that and I sort of think it is maybe an anti-play. I look at it and I say, do I think Locke is going to sacrifice love for duty? And I don't know that he will. I wonder if maybe he is going to eventually sacrifice duty for the sake of Sabatha. And then I also question, will Sabatha stay, stick around long enough to get into a place where she's willing to risk her freedom or life for the sake of Locke. And I tend to think, no, I tend to think she won't, you know? So I wonder if it's not playing a little bit of a twist on that. I don't know. Well, I think it's a really clever way to introduce the theme in another way Mm -hmm. and present a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. No matter, no matter how you, you play it out there. But it's a clever bit of storytelling. In my opinion, I know some people don't care for the play parts of this, but, um, for me, being a, a old theater geek, I, I dug it. No, that's my favorite part of the novel. Every other part of the novel, I was like, okay, this is, it's all right, this is whatever. Like, the whole, to me, the whole election was, like, why are we doing this? Because I think we saw from the beginning that the election itself had no freaking bearing on anything. Right. You know? So, to me, the the relationship between Locke and Sabatha, I enjoyed, and... The play, I enjoyed. The rest of it, I could really have done without. Yeah. And The Weekend at Bernie's Caper. Eh, you know what? Eh, it was a, I didn't no. really like that that much. Didn't really like that? Yeah. I mean, I was glad that Bully Dazzy got what was his, but... Absolutely. And so the gang finds itself in a sticky situation right after the play, and that all of Bully Dazzy's friends have come to the play and are expecting to see him. So they have old Donker... Yay, Donker! <laughs> Prance on stage wearing Buladazi's clothes and a a mask, and they say, "Oh, look, it's our patron Buladazi," and he waves to them, and then off he goes. And then they stage this elaborate uh, ruse wherein they say that he has twisted his ankle. He's taken to a bathhouse. They get the money from the play delivered to him there. They pretend like he's in there getting it on with Sabatha, and they are able to then stage a fire to cover up the fact that he was actually, you know, stabbed. In the midst of all of this, Mon Crane bakes off with the money, abandoning them. <laughs> so they pin the murder on him. Scene ends, curtains close on that interlude. Yeah, now that that part at the end I did enjoy. I did enjoy the the Mon Crane double cross. Right? That's going to be the name of the next con I pull. The Mon Crane. The Mon Crane Double Cross. <laughs> going to roll up into the bank and pull a Mon Crane Double Cross. And it's funny because what happens is Mon Crane and Galdo go off to take the money somewhere 
that Mon Crane has suggested that they take it for safekeeping. And now Galdo comes back alone without the money. And he's like, he asked me to hold the wagon while he carried the money. And he sounded, it was so reasonable. He said he sounded just like us, you know? So it's, I just thought that was clever. The double crossers got double crossed. Um, But it makes you wonder if Mon Crane is going to ever show up again. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Because he just kind of goes off into the night, you know, and they, they have their revenge and that he'll he'll have to run the rest of his life. It's not enough money for him to retire. And he's basically kind of screwed himself. He'll never be able to come back there. He'll certainly never be able to go to Kamor. I know where he's going to be. Where? Well, I'll tell you later. Okay. So after that... Oh, also, can I just say how funny it was? So Mistress Gloriano is the owner of this inn where the... Moncrane Company live basically lives and holds their practices. Mm-hmm. And they've been she's she's I guess an older lady. She's kind of frail and they're trying so hard to keep her out of it. And at the end they just have to bring her in and they're like, like uh, uh. and uh and she's she says something like, You Kamori, you think this is the first time I've had to hide a body? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I run it in. So sorry, I just got tickled about that. Yeah, that was fun. So then we've got an, another intersect, which is where we Again, we've been following the conversations between Cold Marrow and a member of the opposite faction of mages where Cold Marrow is seemingly turning his coat and setting up an ambush for the conservative faction to be taken by the progressive faction. So this is the one of the last of these intersects where Cold Marrow is sitting with this this newer faction and He's apparently they're getting ready to perform this coup, but it turns out to be a reverse coup. It's the it's the Mon Crane double cross. It's the Mon Crane double cross. Cold Marrow oh, has you thought we were gonna zig, but we zagged, they bitches. Zagged. And they blew up a bunch of bonds, Magi. Oh, you thought we were gonna pull a coup, but really you've been sitting on many, many, many thousands of jars of fire oil. Fire oil. Yeah, what what is that stuff in a song of ice and fire that I green shit used to eat it all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, that's gonna drive me crazy. <sighs> Pyromancers, yeah, dragon, not dragon. Fire. I'm reading too many things now. Whatever. I'm reading too many different Every, things. Everybody who's listening to this right now is like, it's, it's this, this you blah, dummies. Come on. Damn it. Witchfire. I'm reading Peter V. Brett's The Warded Fire, Man, and they Jade. have. Ah, <sighs> uh, whatever. We'll, okay. All right. It, it'll come to us in 20 Don't minutes. Get bogged down. Anyway, okay. in this last intersect, the progressive faction who was the Falconer's faction, the faction who wanted to go out and conquer the world. They are basically all but wiped out. Yeah. And the sky chamber is shut down. We see Patience kind of with a tear rolling down her cheek being like, <laughs> now it's time. And I now shall diminish and go into the West. My time has come. <laughs> and though I face the final curtain. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. Those lyrics are in the book. It's, yeah, it's Sid Don't Vicious question us. doing my way. Right before he, you know, kills his girlfriend and himself. It's, this this book is exactly like Sid and Nancy. 
I think I really had to vehemently disagree with you <laughs> on that one. I was trying to decide if I had to disagree or vehemently disagree. It's, there's vehemence in there. Uh, well, you know, I mean. I'm vehemently disagreeing. Uh, what I'm saying is it's subjective. It's art. It's art, man. Vehemently. Taint paint. crazy. <laughs> I feel about that statement, I think, the way you feel when I compare Stannis to the Archon. <laughs> Have you watched Sid and Nancy recently? I I love Locke and Sabatha, okay? Mm-hmm. I love that they're like both crazy and completely messed up, but they talk about their problems. Like they're willing to change for each other. They're not just like, I don't care. We're just going to destroy ourselves. You know? Yeah. I love that. It's so rare to see that written well, you know? And to see a a relationship grow and develop like this that I can connect to. I don't know. I just, I love it. It's not, it's not Sid and Nancy. (laughs) (laughs) In my humble opinion. So there's one last interlude after this intersect. I only have four words written down. You do? All right, yeah. give them to it's me. It's called The Last Interlude, Thieves Prosper, Locke and Sabbatha Do It. Boom. That's basically what happens. A kind of denouement. They all wind down. They they The cast of characters is able to escape the debtor's prison. and Yeah, this is kind of the only... I don't want to say the only denouement. It's the only sort of emotional denouement that you get in this novel. This is the only kind of emotional satisfaction that you get, and it happened ten years ago. Or I don't know. Thirteen I, for years me, ago. I I enjoyed the election results, the way that that all played out. I guess there was some of that when they were kind of comparing notes, standing standing up there watching what was going on. So yeah, the next chapter is called "The Five Year Game Returns," and it's basically Locke and John and Sabatha sitting there watching the votes roll in. So they're watching these so i don't know if we really talked too much about what the political structure of carthane actually is but basically you've got districts each one has a consale it was like michigan went red holy fuck we're screwed and uh, each one has a consale member and you've got the two parties the black iris the deep roots and Mm -hmm. there's nine districts so whoever has the majority obviously gets things their way or 19 19 yeah Okay, possibly. I don't know. It's not. It's nineteen. I trust you. <laughs> but either way, they're watching the votes roll in. I just like the clever little twist where they had that one Black Iris Consale member that they tried to bribe to turn his coat, and then they broke into his house to steal something, and then they told Nicaros after finding out he was the rat, they told him that they needed a boat, and then as Locke and Sabatha have their last meeting together, she points out this boat to them and says, you know, we've got this, this one of my consale members, someone broke into his house and stole his ancestors' reliquaries. Mm. And he's like, oh my goodness, that's who terrible. Would, and she's like, who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? But, you know, thankfully, we were able to find them. And oh, look, look at this boat right here, the boat with the reliquaries mm-hmm. being boarded by the constables. And she said, I would I would hate for anything to distract him from being a good Black Iris party member. You know, yeah, and he's yeah. like, he's like, you cheeky bitch, you know, yeah, yeah. and he acts all upset. 
But the reality is, is that's a distraction from the actual coup that's going on. Right, because as the votes roll in and they find out that the Black Iris has exactly one member more than the Deep Roots Party, this council member declares himself an independent out of nowhere. And she's like, Sabbath is like, what the, how did you do that? And he says, well, you know, well, A, he likes to know this guy is power hungry. So the fact that he's the independent, he's going to get to yeah, he'd, sway all of the votes. Absolutely. And, and he says, you know, we also bribed him. And she's like, there's no way you bribed him. I have, I have eyes and ears all over this house. And he's like, well, we put gems in the reliquaries and you delivered them right back. And thank so I, you. That was just yeah, kind yeah. of clever, you know, because we've, especially since we've seen Sabbath adjust, just spank Locke and John over and over in this process. Well, it was, cu- it was cool to see them do something clever. One of the things I did like were the sort of the layers within this whole section. So yeah. the boat is a distraction from the actual political coup that's going on. But it's also the thing that delivers it right back into their hands, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when you get to the actual situation with the Bonds Magi, mm-hmm. this whole election is the distraction that allows them to pull off this giant, real political coup in Carthane. Uh, but the result of that coup brings all the power and puts it squarely back into the hands of the falconer. Indeed, and in the last chapter, chapter 12, it's called The End of Old Dreams, Patience has one last meeting with Locke and John, and she reveals to them that the whole reason that the five-year game was ever established was that her forebears knew that there may come a time when there would be a need for a, a coup like this, a war between the Bonds mages, and that this would be a perfect opportunity to, while everyone's attention was on this election, to have such an event occur, and that it finally happened. And she also reveals to them that the Bonds mages are planning to leave Carthane and that they'll never be heard from again. Because they they can hear the grumblings beneath the earth, deep in the oceans. Things are waking. So this is, oh, you know, it's like Star Wars, George R. R. Martin meets Cthulhu mythos meets Lost. It's exactly like that. That's brilliant. I mean, if you throw enough shit in the pot, eventually it tastes like soup. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was a brilliant synopsis. So Patience shows up just as Locke and John and Sabbath are about to finally waltz off to a happyish ending. Bah, bah, bah. You know, Locke and Sabbath finally do it for the third time. <laughs> third time's magic. <laughs> you get a pass. You definitely get a pass on, on number one. Uh, absolutely. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. I mean, cause that's just common decency. <laughs> it doesn't count. The first one doesn't count. Everybody <laughs> knows that. You know. Second one depends on what rules you're playing by. You know, if you're playing by the Moncrane double cross rules, second one's in play. But for decent folk, all <laughs> judgments are made on the third time. Absolutely. Always the way it goes. I hear that's when you get to do the kinky stuff. <laughs> Come on, it's a Dr. Horrible reference. Oh, is oh, I missed it's it. It's been a Sorry. while since you've seen Dr. Horrible. Yeah, it's been a while. 
So this chapter, Patience shows up to ruin their their walk off into the sunset. And Locke wakes up with Patience in the room, Sabbatha having fled. He, Patience showed her something which made her flee. And she basically is there to taunt him one last time. You, you can't hear it. But my eyes are rolling so His hard. His eyes are rolling so that hard. That I just knocked has, the laptop right off. He the has stand. feelings. I can't wait to hear them because I I rather liked this part. So patient shows up and she's like, "Yeah, she left. I showed her something." Revenge is a dish best served lukewarm. I think that. See, for me, I thought this was kind of cool. She shows up. Whatever. Sabbath is gone. He's like, what did you say to her? And she's like, I told her the truth. And he's like, I think you're lying. She's like, well, that's my revenge, basically. And um, he says, well, what am I? And she says, you're a man who doesn't get to know the answer. And then she lays like a, 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 a mystifying prophecy on him and is like, go, go forth and live. Live uncertain. I think that's pretty good revenge, in my opinion. So here's the prophecy. I'm going to read it. Stop rolling your eyes. Oh, my goodness. Don't be so cynical. <laughs> uh, Just you're not enjoy the, a story. You're not the first person to tell me that. Goodness gracious. All right. Now you know where our 11-year-old gets it from. <laughs> it's so true. All right, here's the prophecy she gives him. Three things you must take up and three things you must lose before you die. A key, a crown, a child. You will die when a silver rain falls. Okay, so maybe it's because I have like extreme... Uh, superstition slash OCD. This is terrifying to me. Anyone giving (laughs) me a prophecy, that is my worst nightmare. Don't give me a prophecy. Because how could you live every day? Four things must you bear. Oh my God, I can't look at keys ever again. A daughter, a son, another daughter, and then a crazy daughter. (laughs) Stop it. That's my worst nightmare. So she's like, go forth and live uncertain. I'm like, oh my God, that's terrifying. Live with uncertainty. Ah. How shall I ever do that? I've been doing it my whole life. I I have not. I don't know what you're talking about. I am always certain. I have the script with me here in my back pocket. Yes, I do. (laughs) Oh, goodness. That is, that's terrifying to me. Three things must you pick up. Three things must you put down. This is one inning of baseball. There are nine <laughs> innings in one game. That's so Until nine so innings that are played, not, that you would will not, not be allowed to quit the game. That does not bother you at all. Unless it, there is rain. And then if you play at least five innings, the game will count. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, so here, here's my problem with it, right? So... I think she says, you know, she says, I tailor to fit. You don't get to know. My revenge on you is that I tell you a half truth. Okay. I feel like the revenge of somebody like, oh, I don't know, say the falconer would be to cut off all of his fingers and remove his tongue and let him live there. Patience revenge is to give him a paper cut. Like, it's such a shitty revenge. And then, you know, here's the problem also sort of on a meta level, right, is that she's going to weave just enough 
information together to give him something that's supposed to agonize him, right? And tease him. So a little bit of the truth, you know, half truth, half bullshit, right? But the problem is, is that that doesn't really work in a novel. Like, he's going to find out what the truth is. So, you know, this is going to be, you know, a temporary annoyance, not anything that's going to have any real lasting impact. I don't think Patience knows she's in a novel, though. I, but but there's... Oh, you're, he's rolling his eyes so hard, you guys. <laughs> but there's just a certain reality there that it's... Now, here's the thing. If, if Scott Lynch can manage to pull off the false prophecy in a way that is satisfying, then fucking golf claps all around. But it's extraordinarily difficult to put prophecy out there and not have it fulfilled in some way. It might not be fulfilled the way it reads on the paper, but it's going to be fulfilled in some way. She's not going to be like, because she says like, you know, or Locke says, I think you're making all this bullshit up. And she's like, we'll just have to wait and see, won't we? But no, it's going to have to be a legit prophecy. Well, yeah, I'm not sure why that Mm -hmm. takes the emotional impact for the character away though. I don't know. I just, it, it didn't really resonate with me as being, again, it's like this, it's like the Archon, like all the, the bullshit that they're going through and the, you know, all the things that the villains are putting in front of them are just hurdles that they have to jump over because they have to get one, um, you know, they have to get one, item from over here and then go deliver it over here. I feel like I'm playing a video game. Like I have to go get this silver arrow and deliver it to this old man so that I can get the next key to the next book. I I, I don't. The lies of Locke Lamora was a brilliant book. Loved it. It was inspired literally by Scott Lynch playing star Wars, the role playing game and turning the game into a novel. In the case of The Lies of Locke Lamora, it worked. It was fantastic. Now it's reading like a D&D adventure. But like, it's one thing for me to play in a D&D adventure. It's another thing for me to read 700 pages of a D&D adventure. I don't know, it just doesn't, it's not, don't get me wrong, like it's not, it's not bad. I'm, I'm coming across in more negative than I really feel. We, you know, we rate, we both rated these books on Goodreads. You gave it five stars. I gave it three stars. I didn't give it two stars or one star. It's enjoyable. It just doesn't have the same punch as something by Patrick Rothfuss or George R. R. Martin. Having said that, those guys are like, you know, the primo best of the genre. Well, and again, I think it comes more down to it being a different type of storytelling. For sure. Um, if you're you're looking for a story where it's very character driven, where every character has emotional resonance, then other books might be stronger. Yeah. But for me, having read these books several times, I think the excellent plot the humor, which you don't get a lot of in fantasy. True. And I, I read a pretty much predominantly fantasy and sci-fi. So when I get a book that can make me actually laugh out loud, I love it. The dialogue and the humor are 
brilliant. Like there are areas where Scott Lynch is one of the preeminent authors, you know, like areas of technical skill where he is the best or among the best, which is what still makes the books enjoyable, despite some of the things that, you know, just are kind of okay. Like, and there's never really been a point in any of any of these books where I've been like, this is horrible. Like, or I just can't, you know, like I just can't go along with this. There are parts where it's sort of like, okay. And then there are parts where it's brilliant. You know, the, they're still good books. They just don't, they don't resonate with me as well. Particularly these two books, Lies of Locke Lamora was phenomenal. I loved it. These books just don't quite live up, but they're still good. They're still also better than a lot of other, like a lot of books I've read outside of this podcast that I've just kind of read on my own. Like none of them live up to this, you know? So I'm sounding more negative. Uh, You know, there are some other books that if we read them, you know, they just would not hold water in comparison to these books. I, I, I think I built this one up like the Republic of Thieves. I feel like I built it up as though it was going to be as good as the lies of Locke Lamora. And it, it just kind of got two-thirds of the way there, you know, but it didn't quite get all the way. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see where the series, I almost said sequence, <laughs> just to piss you off, to see where the series goes from here. Because part of what, in my opinion, has been missing has been an overarching mystery. And there has been one, but it's been so subtly laid out there. And that is the existence of the Eldrin or whatever drove the Eldrin off, the overarching mystery of who Locke is. And really, it wasn't until almost the end of this book that all of that stuff got laid out there. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I think that this is a series that for me has a lot of potential to see where that all of that stuff is going to go. Who is Locke? Is he... Uh, is he a bo- complete body snatcher? Is he, um, you know, is he actually the the orphan lock with a little bit of Lamoracanthus memories sprinkled in there like salt? That's that's just very interesting to me. And for me, I liked like I got to the end of this book and I immediately wanted to reread the series and go back and look and see if there were clues, you know. And the fact that it's mentioned several times, especially with from Sabatha about Locke seeming like two different people. Well, well, let me ask you, because you've read it now like three times. So going back and reading The Lies of Locke Lamora, are there little subtle tiny clues that are paying off at the end of book three? So the one that's jumped out to me recently was when Sabatha is reading his letter and she lays it out there, like I said, that Locke always seemed like two different people. Mm -hmm. One who always needs to play it safe, who wants to do things a certain way because that's the way they've always done, who wants family, who wants roots, who wants everything to be steeped in tradition. Yeah, That's the Locke that she can't stand. But then there's this completely other Locke the one who will, who would, uh, 
if he had his throat cut and the physiker was sewing him up, would steal the needle and die laughing. Mm-hmm. The one who would spit in Azagila's eye, even if it gave him a million years in hell. Mm-hmm. And after a million years, he would do it again. Yeah. And that's the lock that she loves. And for me, that was such a light bulb moment because I was like, oh my gosh, maybe one of these is Lamora Canthus. And one of these is lock the orphan yeah mm-hmm. and it is very interesting that you do see both sides of that yeah you do this is a kid who went from you know kind of sl- he'll he'll go from slavishly adoring sabatha to kind of turning around and taking control of this group of orphans and stepping up as a leader but he does seem to go swing back and forth all throughout the childhood scenes especially where she's around no that's true and i would also agree with you that i do think this series has a lot of potential. So I think like, it'll be interesting to see where that mystery goes, where the mystery of the Eldrin, are we building up to some kind of giant magical conflagration? Like I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in on this one. I'm yeah, showing up for this. I'm also completely willing. If this series pays these things off to say that spending 400 pages at sea, you know, and 300, 400 pages on an election if it lay, if it's laying the groundwork for something and it pays off, I'll completely eat my words. I'll get Scott Lynch's picture tattooed don't, on the middle of my back. Don't say that. Right between my shoulder of, blades. If you say it on the podcast, you're his smiling face. <laughs> his lovely locks. Don't don't do it. Right between my shoulder blades. Don't. It'll say in Scott Lynch we trust. <laughs> I'll do it. Don't say it on the podcast if you don't mean it. That might be worse than the time you had a mustache. <laughs> I have a beautiful <laughs> Billy D. Williams mustache when I grow it out. Or I guess more of like a... Uh, when you shave the rest of your goatee who's and the, leave who's the, the magnum? I don't have a goatee. I have a beard. <laughs> who's the... Um, Who's the Magnum P.I.? Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. I have a very Tom Selleck mustache. God. I don't look as good in a Hawaiian shirt or a Ferrari, though. It's creepy. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't even stomach that. You look like you're going to ask me if I want to know what the trade-in value on my vehicle is. (laughs) (laughs) So scary. There is nothing to you that is more scary than being approached by a car salesman and asking. God, you're you making my ass trade. twitch right now. <laughs> Stop it. So, but we have not even got to the end. All right. So the epilogue. We're going way off the tracks. The epilogue. Okay. So we have to say, I have to read this quote too, because as Locke and John are hightailing it out of Carthane because they realize, oh, hey, in the morning, all of Carthane is going to wake up and realize that the mages that have basically kept their city running and safe for hundreds of years are gone. Mm-hmm. They're going to get out of there before that happens. Locke says, key crown child. Well, fuck you, patience. Three things you must kiss before I let you spook me for good. My boots, my balls, and my ass. <laughs> and then they walk out of town. My favorite line in that is a, is a page or two earlier where, you know, Locke is just sort of moping 
and it, just the tone of it. And John says, you're going to be miserable to be with for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Just the way the way that line kind of breaks it up, you know. So I mean, there are things that Scott Lynch does that are just phenomenal, you know. Well, you know, and we talk about this not being terribly character-driven book, but Jean and Locke are some of my favorite characters in fiction. Yeah, like I, I, I struggle, and that's what's so difficult for me. Like there's something about, like there's something in the magic that for me is like it's it's not a hall of fame book it's a hall of very good like it's a good book but there's some spark that just isn't there to take it into the realm of like the best books but i can't put my finger on what it is because i don't know that i would agree agree with your assessment that it's not character driven because i I think some of these characters are really phenomenal like i think sabbath is a much better character than denna I think Locke is a great character. I think Sean's a great character. Um, I think all the Gentleman Bastards are really good. There definitely are some cardboard members of the cast, for sure, but you could say that with any book. Uh, You know, the plots are among the best that you can find out there. The dialogue's among the best. And yet it still just doesn't have the same emotional resonance with me. And I can't put my finger on why that is. And I think it may just come down to, for whatever reason, you know, there's a lot of really phenomenal art out there that some people look at and just go, oh, it looks kind of like a drawing. Hey, that's a picture of some plants, you know. And they don't, it doesn't connect with them. And for whatever reason, this to me looks like a really well-executed painting of some plants. So I hear what you're saying, but for me... I think for a book to be character driven, it's not just about, oh, it's got good characters. Mm -hmm. It's about how do those characters grow and change? And how does the plot serve that character arc? You know, there just aren't, and we have some growth in the characters and we've talked about that, but we don't have a a Jamie Lannister arc here. No, we don't. We don't have Arya traveling and, and becoming... A faceless man. I yeah. mean, we just don't have. There's nothing like that that happens in these books. Jean, and we see him change a little bit from the time he's orphaned to the time he's a man, but he's pretty much kind of the same guy throughout. Yeah, he's the steel to Locke's gold, you know. And and Sabatha is. We see her grow again a little bit, but it's not. That's not what the story is about. It's not about yeah. what happens to these people and how they change. It's about. It's about this cool world. It's about these cool heists and the plot and these neat little tricks and and the connection that the characters have with each other. But the it doesn't really change throughout the books. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But the Falconer man... He changes. He changes. He becomes a metal man. He's so metal. I'm a metal man. Love it. So the last section so, of this book we read is called Wings, the epilogue. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I did not say for the listeners of the podcast that we have finally found the key to unlocking the lemon-scented box. What is it? It's your dream steel fingers, baby. <laughs> Those magical metal fingers. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds cold. Bring me them shiny digits. 
He's got a sil- he literally has a silver tongue. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. He literally has a silver literally tongue. Literally has a silver tongue. And a voice that sounds like metal. So like James Halpert? Not James Halpert. God damn it. You're watching The Office too. I much. know. He's been binge watching The Office every <laughs> night. Who's the goddamn singer? James Headley. Headley? Headley. Rob Halford. James Headland. Hold on. It's Judas Priest I'm thinking of. Okay. James Hetfield. Metallica. That's who I was thinking of. We're just sitting here smiling at each other at this point. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to recover from everyone finding out that we are not as metal. (laughs) <laughs> as no, we always claim to be no you're not as metal as you <laughs> excuse me we both had to google certain metal bands okay i've never really claimed not it. lying we listen we both picked up our phones and googled I, i've been close enough to kind of see the metal but i've never claimed to be metal like i've been around enough people who are really into metal to know that i am I am a weekend warrior at best. <laughs> well, that's out there. <laughs> All our listeners who are only listening to us because they think we're metal fans. I'm sorry. Well, they're going to leave now. They're going to leave now. That's all right. <laughs> All the Norwegian black metal fans that were attached to this podcast, <laughs> the Venn diagram, it's one bright, shiny, happy circle on loose leaf paper and one dark metal black circle with the <laughs> devil's skull. And they're on opposite sides of the room. <laughs> so this epilogue, though, that was pretty metal. That was pretty goddamn metal. So it's called Wings. I mean, the only thing that was missing was him burning down a church. It's true. And to be fair, we don't know what he did. He did literally kill his own mother with a flock of birds. Shall we go through it? Let's do it. Okay. So we start off with um, an inner glimpse of the Falconer's life. Go ahead. I'm just making the soundtrack. No, this part's the sad part. Oh, sorry. It's the tragic backstory. (laughs) Sorry, power ballad time. not time for power chords. Oh, sorry. (laughs) So it's sad. For me, it was sad. We find out basically that not every mage controls animals in fact that's kind of looked down on among the mages because of the vulnerability that it creates you know as we saw yeah. when the falconer's hawk was struck he was weakened but he doesn't care and i like the phrase he says he just wants life lived on the wind yeah so we find out though it's revealed that patience was the one who crippled the falconer that when he came to see her at the end, when he took the assignment to go work for the Great King, mm-hmm. she put a trap in his mind, and she used his true name for the only time—the to- only time she's ever used it—in order to lay this trap. That the next time that he used a pain-deadening spell, that he would go mad. So that's kind of a big reveal. Man, yeah. Wow. Like that's cold, right? That's some cold shit. Like. And it, for me, it gives the falconer a bit of pathos because yeah. it's like this is his own mother. His own mother. Did that to him. 
And she definitely listens to Cannibal Corpse. Totally. And it's interesting to to look at the quandary that she was facing because she did it because she truly believed that the path he was pursuing was going to be the end of the world. Like she truly believed that. So I don't know. I just thought it was kind of sad and poignant. The, so anyway, he, he finds this out. Patience comes to see the Falconer one more time. And um, tells him, you know, you lost, your side lost. She lifts the fog that was causing him to be all crazy and stuff. And she says, we're leaving. You're never going to see us again. You know, I'm I'm your mother, so I'm still going to provide this house for you. And, and this guy here who will end your suffering if you decide you want that. And then she leaves. And then, okay, now you can do the... the <laughs> Gone. So the falconer, <laughs> he's stumbling around his house. He's like, he's like, damn it, I don't have hands or anything. And my tongue is gone too, and it sucks. If only I had a way to grasp my pain. He manages to, he goes to this bowl of dream steel. I'm the in the land. And he... Somehow, with his ma- super mage powers, he's able to craft himself a metal hand. And if the- only I had my metal hands. <laughs> See, the way I'm saying it makes it sound kind of like capricious and cheesy, but I, I didn't. <laughs> it doesn't come off that way in the book. <laughs> it's a, It's maybe a little capricious and cheesy, but I went with it. I, I mean, you go with it. Yeah, I was like. It. I mean, I was thinking before we led up to this, I'm like, this, what I really think has been missing in these two books is just a really kick-ass villain, because I just feel like his storytelling lends itself to more of, like, straight-up good versus evil. Mm -hmm. Like, I I feel like when he starts to get philosophical and everybody's just kind of gray, there's Mm -hmm. no good, I feel as when his writing starts to... Mm -hmm to get into navel-gazing, and that just sort of saps it Mm -hmm. of what makes it super powerful. When he sticks to a more straightforward, you know, this guy's a dick, and he's going to hound us at every step, you know, like you you got in the back half of the Lies of Lachlamora, that shit's awesome. So when we get into the epilogue, and I realize that this is wrapping up with a falconer and i start to see what's happening i'm like yes this is what's been missing from these last two books and it that's why i'm excited for the next book well not only that but now we finally have all this kind of backstory on the falconer yeah and it's not like oh he's just an evil prick because he's been hired to be that way it's like we understand the the underpinnings of what he wants to do and what he's about yeah. And that's kind of cool. So now he's got a metal hand and a metal tongue so he can do magic again. The he's magic metal Powerful man. and badass than ever. <laughs> he pops a dude's head and then he sends a flock of birds that peck his mother to death. And then he ends the book with this very metal and ominous statement. He says, oh, mother, I think the last fucking thing your friends are going to enjoy is a time of quiet. The time of... Oh, sorry. No, keep going. The time of quiet. (laughs) It's pretty metal. The end. From what I've heard of metal. 
That sounds that sounds pretty pretty metal. So yeah, I'm excited about the next book. We've got ominous shit glowing underneath the ocean. We seem to have more activity coming around. We get little subtle hints of that stuff. Then the Bonds Magi tell us, Cthulhu sleeps beneath the sea, you know, and he <laughs> wakens. The great old ones are coming alive, you know. And then we get this dude with literally a silver tongue who finally becomes the villain that we've been missing. And I'll forgive the sort of mediocre nature of these two books mm-hmm. if they're setting up something that's awesome. Yeah. You know, because again, I've sounded a little bit negative. They're not they're not bad books. They're good books, you know. And I think if you take them in the whole of the series, if Scott Lynch is able to pay it off, you'll look back on these and be like, yes, he was building something awesome, you know, yeah. something that's going to pay off. Because I will ride hundreds of pages of backstory and exposition out if it just pays off. It's just got to pay off, you know. I'm a little concerned. I don't I don't want to be a downer. But I've already been a downer, so I'm going to do it anyway. I'm a little concerned about whether or not he'll ever finish the series. I'm not. I'm along for the ride. I'm glad. I'm glad you are. He's a young dude. It's He's going to finish it. I hope so. I think it's going to be awesome. I hope so. I think a page has been turned. All right. Are you ready for predictions? Yes. All right. I have four predictions. All right. And they're, they're as metal as the Falconer's magic fingers. Yeah. He's going to. He's going to stroke it. He's going to poke it. And the lemon box is going to pop. It's going to flower in front of him. Stop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I, I thank you. I, I thank you for stopping me. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> Somebody had to. So prediction number the first. The Falconer will take over the power vacuum in Carthane and use the war in the Marrows as a tool. Not rocket science. That's kind of that mm-hmm. was fairly obvious, but I gotta I gotta do it anyway. Prediction the second. Anybody who says prediction the second is definitely a full blown Chad. You pull it off though. I I try. Patience killed Lamora Canthus' wife in grief over her own husband's death. Death. Mm. That's a good prediction. Prediction the third, Locke will die essentially upon killing the Falconer. Hmm, okay. In a reign of silver. Well, obviously, reign of silver. Okay, so again, that one's not, not, not too out there. My last prediction for the Gentleman Bastard series, Mon Crane was responsible for the war in the Marrows. Ooh, I like that one. I like that one. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. Yep. So I have a couple as well. Yes. Because I this is as far. We're, yes, we're that's up. right. So my prediction is that Locke is going to struggle and struggle with the idea of whether or not he is Lamore Acanthus. But we are going to find out at the end that he is actually Locke Lamora. 
He is the orphan boy, and he's got a few maybe sprinklings of memory or impressions of Lamora Canthus, but that he is primarily who who he is, that he's not actually this sorcerer reborn. I also am predicting that Sabatha is going to be faced with the choice that Amadine was to either sacrifice herself or live beholden to someone and that she's going to sacrifice herself. I think that Locke is also going to end up sacrificing himself in some sort of end of the world. And it may be he and Sabatha sacrifice themselves together. Very good. I agree, especially with the last one. And I have some some reasons for it. Are you done? I should, I'm sorry. I think so. I didn't want to cut you off. So I have some, some interesting information behind why I agree with you that Locke is going to sacrifice himself. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here's here's my big tinfoil. Okay. Big tinfoil, okay? Lamore Acanthus. Lamore equals love. Acanthus is the name of a wild, flowering, thorny flower mm-hmm. uh, in the Mediterranean area discovered by Carl Linnaeus, who is a botanist from Sweden, Swedish nobility. He is the father of modern taxonomy. Really? That's right. And the aesthetics of the Corinthian architecture, Greek columns, uses the acanthus flower at its capital, its capital being the head of the column. The column, the place where the greatest pressure is born, its leaves, when they die, are crushed into the formed into the basis of many medicines that keep people alive. Thus, Locke, love, will be killed and his death will be a sacrifice that will save the lives of people the world over. 9-11 was an inside job. <laughs> that was magnificent. I really, I wish I could capture my face right now and just <laughs> show it to everyone because... I'm a gog. I'm aghast. <laughs> I am truly. Just don't be a ghost. I love you. I don't. Want Bravo. That Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well done. <sighs> That's it. We're done with the gentleman bastards. Oh my goodness. All right. So we are now done with all the written material in the gentleman bastard sequence. Oh my goodness. Well, almost. There's just more, like that. Just like that. There are two things we have left to do. The first is we have to give our fantasy casting. Oh, yes. And the second is that we have to reveal what it is that we're doing next. So are you ready to do your fantasy casting for the Gentleman Bastards and or the Republic of Thieves? I'm so ready. All right. Booyah. All right. So I wanted to, I kind of broke it down into the young group of characters and then the a group of characters that are involved in the election. So are you okay with starting with the uh, Mon Crane troop? Yes, although, I mean, I there may be people that I do not have. That's fine, yeah. There may be people that I don't have either. All right. All right. So I guess we will start, we will start with some of the lesser characters. 
Do you have anyone for Donker? Go fish. <laughs> I have Matthew Lewis. Oh, who, tell me. What's he been in? He is Neville Longbottom in Harry Potter. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's perfect. That's my Donker. Now I can't see anything else. <laughs> perfect. All right. Do you have anybody for Buladazi? Yes. Brandon Ruth or Ralph. I don't know how it's pronounced. Okay. He was on Arrow. He played Adam. And then his character then was on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Which one was that? Okay. I watched enough of Arrow. He came on in the... Was it the young kid? No. Okay. He came on later. He was like a... a he took over the company. He came on after you stopped watching. Oh, I okay, think, then I don't me. know who it is. Okay. I have uh, James McAvoy. Oh. Young Charles Xavier in X-Men. Yeah. And he's been in a bunch of other things. Yeah. That's just what I figured most people would know him as. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jasmine Moncrane. Do you have anybody? Um. Yes. Jasmine Moncrane has always and always in my mind will be James Earl Jones. Oh, I like that. I went a very different direction. Yeah. In my mind, Jasmine Moncrane is Dustin Diamond, Screech from Saved by the Bell. I mean, I guess the only problem with that is that he's described as being black, like, a lot. <laughs> I totally missed that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that there were... I thought um, Sylvanus and... Um, a couple of the other characters were black, but I... No, Janora and Gloriana and Mon Crane are described as being night-skinned. I thought it was Janora, uh, the other lady, and Sylvanus. Okay, no, so and I, in fact, okay. that's why they say he escapes at the end, because they're like, no, they're going to go after him, and they're like, no, he went to the docks, and it's all like... The um, night skin Serestri there who will never turn over a fellow. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. I missed that. Damn it. I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't want to turn the fantasy casting into arguing. But. No, no, that's not arguing. <laughs> that's just me missing a detail. It's not the first time <laughs> we've done that. All right. Who do you have for teenage Kahlo and Galdo? I, Nobody? No. I have Neil Sethi. He's the guy who played Mowgli in the most recent Jungle oh, Book. Oh, yes. That would be perfect. That kid is a good actor, and now he, he would be about the right age. Yeah, you're right. What about um, Teenage Sabatha? I had a hard time with it, but I, I came up with Mackenzie Foy. See, I imagined um, Mina Sundwall. Who's that? She is the, the girl in Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I did not think about Lost in Space. Should have gone there. Do you have a casting for Teenage Jean? No. I have Martin Holden Weiner, who played Glenn Bishop in Mad Men. He's been in one or two other okay. things. Um, I think it was Me, Myself, and I, I think he was in as well. Child actor. What about Teenage Locke? So, I mean, for me, Locke and John are just so young David Tennant and um, fat Jason Statham that I just picture them, but like young younger. fat Jason Statham. So yes, my team John is young <laughs> fat Jason Statham. It's a fantasy cast, Jack. <laughs> I could do what I want. You absolutely, you absolutely, there are no rules in fantasy casting. 
I have to say Locke is absolutely the hardest person to cast. He really is. Try, if you're like me, and you spend a lot of time looking up young male teenage actors, <laughs> try finding one who isn't gorgeous. Right. Yeah, because he's described as being just plain. average looking, bland. Yeah. You can't find But he's got to have charisma, too. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I think David Tennant is perfect. Don't. Oh, I'm not. I'm not here to poo-poo your fantasy. So who did you you come up with? I came up with Ty Simpkin. He was one of the child actors in the new Jurassic Park. Okay. But he's too good looking. So I'm not real happy about it. Yeah, he's good looking. They'd have to ugly him up. They'd definitely have to ugly him up. Uh, Moving into the present, quote, present tense hold on what about sylvanius i didn't come up with any for him you know what james earl jones (laughs) i had victor garber oh i know that name okay he played um the dad on alias ah okay gotcha okay so for me like moncrane and sylvanius both had the have to have voices that are like 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 you could just listen to them forever, you know, yeah. because they're described as just being magical on the stage. I'm really upset about that. I really liked my Dustin Diamond because he's a he's about the right age and he's just cheesy enough. Have you seen recent pictures of Dustin Diamond? No. How about uh, Mistress Gloriano? I did not do. Go fish. I had um, Octavia Spencer. I like it. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. All right. Present tense? Yes. Okay. Damn superstitious Dexa. Bonnie Bartlett. Who is Bonnie Bartlett? Okay. So she um, played, she was in one episode that you would know of Serenity, of Firefly, where she was the, um, the old, like, Riding a horse cowboy. She played Patience. Oh, she shot yes, him. Yes, That lady. Yes. I like that. That's really good. Th- by the way, that might be my favorite character in in Firefly. Right? <laughs> like in Serenity. <laughs> I love that character. All right. Mine is Zoe Wanamaker. Played Madam Hooch and played Cassandra on Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, a Verdratha. Okay, this is going to be the weirdest one I've ever had. But who I picture as Verdratha, you're not, I don't know if you'll understand this. Okay. Who I've always pictured as Verdratha was, um, animated Prince Eric's valet from The Little Mermaid. Whoa, that... So I have to ask, listeners, do you ever have an animated character pop into your head in your in your fantasy cast when you're reading? And it's kind of disconcerting, but you just go with it? Or am I just really weird? I have to know. But that's who I picture. Grimsby. Grims? Grimsby. That's who I picture. That's awesome. Mine is Eddie Izzard. Oh, yeah. A little older than mm-hmm. I picture him, but he could pull it off. All right, do you have a casting for uh, Nikoros? Um, I didn't. I, I looked and looked, and I just, nope. Mine is the Magikarp guy. Yeah, I don't know who that is. All right, well, 
Look it up. It's <clears throat> funny. I just looked up Magikarp. It's a Pokemon. No, but the Magikarp guy. It's a guy who looks like the Magikarp. It's in a meme. Oh. He's making these overly <clears throat> incredulous faces at this British. Oh, yes. Okay, I see him now. Yeah, Red I Redhead grows here. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's funny. All right. So I only have three left for this series. I have the Falconer, Patience, and Sabatha. Because everybody else we've already cast. Right. Who who do you have? For the Falconer, and I think we talked about this the last book. I feel like we did cast him already, but I, yeah. I like my new one. So I always pictured him as Christopher Guest. Oh. That's a good one. I don't know. He might be too old now to do it, but that's who I always pictured. I went a slightly different direction. I went with Paul Shear. Paul Shear is if you saw him, you would immediately immediately recognize him. Mm-hmm. He's been in a million freaking things. Um, I think the things he's he's been in a bunch of different movies. Uh, the thing he's most known for is a show called The League, uh, but he's also been in Once Upon a Time. He was in the show Veep. He was in the show Workaholics. Mm-hmm. He was in the show I'm Sorry. He did some voices on Adventure Time. Like, he's he's done a million things. He was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. A million things. See, to me, the Falconer has to look a little on the goofy side. You think so? Yeah, because he's kind of like, he's kind of balding and like... Yeah, there's not a not lot of balding like, actors who aren't like in their 60s. Yeah, yeah. Like he's young and he's balding. He's not like super striking or handsome. Mm-hmm. He just kind of looks like a regular dude in his 30s, you know? Yeah. And so Paul Shearer to me is that casting. Hmm. Yeah. I like Christopher Guest though. Hmm. I, I, he's probably a little old, but we're fantasy casting. We can make him 30. Mm-hmm. We can. Yeah. I mean, I have young, fat Jason Statham on my list, so... I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with young, fat Jason Statham. He'll take my burrito. <laughs> he, Fuck that. He would. He would take your burrito. I can't I can't have that. <laughs> He'll drive off with it very quickly on his bicycle. <laughs> All right. Who do you have for patience? Michelle Pfeiffer. Damn, that was so easy. I agonized over this decision. Yes. No, definitely. She's the one who just popped right in my head. Definitely Michelle Pfeiffer. I absolutely struggled with this one. I have Tilda Swinton. Hmm. I could definitely see Tilda doing it. Yeah. One of my favorite actresses, actually. She's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Who do you have for Sabatha? Emily Blunt. Again, very easy for me. Emma Stone. Okay. That has been Fantasy Casting with (laughs) Chad and Liz. All right, so I guess we can't put it off any longer. We really can't. We've built it up. Our last reveal, we, we had such a clever little game. I know, yeah. Well, I think we should tell them next time. Tell them on the next episode. No, I'm not going to do that to you. 
So we have had so many good suggestions. So many. About what we should cover next. From Ray Bradbury to Brent Weeks to N.K. Jemison. But we have decided that we have to stick with one of the heavy hitters of the fantasy genre. And I'm going to read my first series ever by Brandon Sanderson. I'm so excited. I'm really excited. And we are going to start with The Way of Kings, book one of the Stormlight Archive. So buckle up, because it's a big book. It is a... You are, we are jumping right in. Big book, yes. It's definitely a big boy book. So we will pick up the Stormlight Archive coverage at or around July 22nd. We will be more than likely releasing uh, an episode on Paper Girls 4 between now and then, but then we're going to be going on a vacation. So y'all have plenty of time to pick up the book and start reading. We are going to be covering the prologue. There is a prologue. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the heads up. And it's important. The prologue and all of part one. I'm hesitant to give page numbers because well, be different in every yeah right and the kindle and the nook versions are, are all different but read all of part one it's a bigger chunk but we have a couple of weeks to get through it and i think it's gonna it's it sets up the main arcs and everything and i'm just so i'm geeking out can't wait for you to read it get to finally dip my toe in that brandon sanderson pool you're you're gonna get sucked right in yeah we'll see we'll see what happens yes so that is what we are going to do. Now, there's one thing we still have yet to do. And we ask people for questions. Now we need to answer their questions. Yes. They gave us their questions. They came through. Now we have got to answer those questions. I want to hear them. So Joe Hurst on Twitter said, how do you respond to the allegations that you have hurt the mizzen mass industry? Positively. <laughs> I feel good about it. Don't feel bad about that at all. You know, I think the mizzen mast industry is going to bounce back. <laughs> it's going to come back stronger. Ashley Marie says, what's your guess for when the Thorn of Emberlane comes out? You know, I think recently on Twitter, Scott Lynch was asking for feedback about a character he's writing for that book. So he's still obviously in the in the writing process. So my guess would be not anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, next year the earliest. Yeah, and even probably towards the end of next year. But I mean, for me, like with this series, like like with Patrick Rothfuss, like with George R. R. Martin, you just you have to release it. You have to just let it go. There's a lot of other stuff to read. I've stopped. Well, here's the real question. What's going to come out first? Winds of oh, Winter. Oh, that's a good one. Thorn of Ember Lane or Doors of Stone. I think Winds of Winter is coming out first. You do? Really? Yes. I, I would say Thorn of Ember Lane. Really? No. Hmm. No, I mean, as in a matter of like weeks or maybe month or so ago, Scott Lynch on Twitter was like asking for feedback about a, char a new character he was writing for Thorn mm. of Ember Lane. A new character. So that to me, that says he's still very much in the 
in the first draft process. Yeah, good point. You know, so wins of winner, my perception is that it's mostly done. There's a few things being tweaked. Yeah. You know, same with Doors of Stone. It's there are just some things he's not happy with, but. Well, Doors of Stone, I know like the bulk of the text has been written, but he's in kind of the editing process. But like he's been in the editing process for years. Like, you know, and I, I feel like I feel like Rothfuss and Martin are also so distracted by other things they have going on with television and other things they're writing, particularly Martin, that I don't know. Um, that's a good point. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. It's a good question for you guys. What do you think is going to come out first? You know what? I think I'll put up a Twitter poll. Hmm, think you should. All right. So a couple of other ones we have. Uh, Judd Taylor says, is this the last book in the series? I love the podcast, but I just couldn't get into this particular series. So obviously we've answered that here in this, but I just wanted to 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 say your name, Judd Taylor, and let you know that we appreciate you sticking around because that that shows some serious bulladazi to stay with us this far. <laughs> it does. Dob Bobolina says, "Do you think John should have beaten the ever loving bejesus out of those old lady spies?" <laughs> I would have, <laughs> but then I'm not a giant pussy. <laughs> he should have. I thought that too at that part. That's my favorite comment so him. far. <laughs> I'm not a giant pussy. <laughs> right. I'd have beat those old ladies. And all I could when I when I read this, Dob, the only thing I could I could I could see was like from the perspective of the old lady laying on the ground and Jean looming over him. And John saying, you want to stay down, Grandma. <laughs> stay down. That's See, you said that in your fat Jason Statham voice. <laughs> Just saying. That's not my Jason Statham voice. <laughs> Can I hear your Jason no, Statham? No. Oh, damn. That's for the other podcast. <laughs> All right, so we did get a couple of new five-star reviews on iTunes. Awesome. We got two new ones. Uh, They were anonymous reviews, so we don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and we thank you for it. You can find us on Twitter at the D&D Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and also on our Facebook group page. So look for the Duke and Duchess Podcast group. And you would find that at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. Our website is the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. And we love your iTunes reviews. We love your reviews on the Google Play Store, on Stitcher. Uh, but what we really love more than anything is really just to interact with you guys and have a good time. You know what? I'm not even going to say put up your billboards Put it out there for, you know, at the water cooler. Tell tell your friends. Show your nerddom. Let your nerd flag fly. No secret no, nerds around here. No secret nerds around. I'm not even going to say that. What I'm going to say is we just love interacting with you guys because when we had to put the podcast out late last time and everybody just started replying with different videos that said, when will I see you again? And all the, like hilarious. this chain of, of all these videos going back and forth. My heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> so do you have anything else? I got nothing. All right. 
Stormlight Archive. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. should have beaten the ever-loving bejesus out of those old lady spies that's my favorite <laughs> i would have of course i'm not a giant pussy <laughs> that's my favorite comment of the week so far <laughs> thank goodness for winky faces otherwise i'd be sending the police after him uh-huh. that's funny all right you ready to do this thing Your microphone's not close enough. We're not getting the full effect. Oh, we've been recording this whole time. Oh, now you're self-conscious. 56 episodes in, now you decide to be self-conscious? People that listen to me sucking on this thing. Suck on it some more. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not doing that. <laughs> now I can't even drink my juice box. Harder. <laughs> you have three beverages over there. You're the worst. <laughs> <laughs>